Have you ever sensed God pushing you to do something that was outside your comfort zone? In Exodus 4, Moses is going through that experience as God brings him to a place of surrender. For the Lord is our defense, yes, you defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yes, you defend For the Lord is our defense, yes, you defend us. For the Lord is our defense, yes, you defend As you read the opening nine verses, you see the interaction between God and Moses continuing. And Moses appears doubtful of a positive response from the children of Israel. If he didn't comprehend the depravity of human nature when he was 40, he certainly understood it now that he's 80. God condescends to give Moses miraculous evidences to affirm his prophetic status. The rod is turned into a serpent and back again. Now, I don't think this had anything to do with any connection to Egyptian gods that were depicted in the form of serpents and so on, because these signs are specifically for the Hebrew elders. So the serpent, the leprosy, and the water turned to blood may have had some redemptive significance. And perhaps, for example, the three represent the symbol of Satan as a serpent, sin in the leprosy, and salvation by the blood. Alternatively, and I prefer this, Christ is spoken of in the Word of God as the rod of God's strength. And so in his condescension, he was, as it were, thrown upon the ground to take the curse that is upon the world. In addition, like the leper's hand, Christ became sin for us. Now, these are redemptive signs, and they are then followed with a sign that's only to be shown if the previous signs are rejected. And therefore, the turning of water into blood signifies judgment for unbelief. In verses 10 through 17, Moses expresses his fourth objection, his slowness of speech. But God tells him of his sovereignty over such details. And then Moses objects for a fifth time in verse 13, suggesting that God send basically anyone else but him. Now, this is no longer humility. It's, it's, it's an expression of wicked and sinful opposition to God's revealed will. And yet God graciously condescends and supplies to Moses his brother Aaron. In verses 18 through 23, Moses returns home and gets approval from Jethro, his father-in-law, to leave. Now, perhaps he delays here for a time because God then has to tell Moses to go since all his known enemies were dead. And so taking his wife and his sons, God informs Moses that he should not expect immediate success because Pharaoh will need to be threatened before he lets the Hebrews go. In verses 24 through 26, we have a few challenging verses, but the context, I think, regarding the killing of the firstborn is key. Now, I don't think God comes here to kill Moses, as some have read it, but his firstborn Gershom, because he had not yet been circumcised. Evidently, Moses, upon marrying Zipporah, either neglected to or was dissuaded from circumcising Gershom. Now, this experience then becomes an illustration right here regarding the importance of household obedience to God. Very soon, we're going to learn about the institution of the Passover, which will threaten the death of the firstborn. And the only way to escape judgment is to sprinkle blood on the doorframe of each home and make sure all the males are circumcised. Now, I don't think we're expecting Zipporah to do this. So the question comes up, is Moses being hesitant again to obey God and 
Has circumcised his grown son? We don't know. Whatever the case, Zipporah steps in and she throws the removed flesh at Moses. And even though in your English Bible it says at his feet, looking at the Hebrew, it may not actually have been at his feet. In verses 27 through 31, Aaron and Moses join together and go before the elders of the children of Israel. Aaron, under Moses' direction, speaks and performs the signs, leading everyone to believe God and worship God together. You have a wonderful depiction here of Aaron depicting men as co-laborers with God in the company of the mediator. This illustrates wonderfully for us how each man must meet with Christ before they engage in service for God. And so we come to application one. God gives second chances after a period of pruning. In chapter 2, Moses ran ahead of God in seeking to deliver the Hebrews. And that disappointment exhausted any sense of enthusiasm for the future. But God is now commissioning him and giving to Moses a second chance. If you know what it's like to fail in the past, let me say to you, neither despair to think that God will never use you again or act too hastily in getting to where you would like to go. Remember, some of our most transformative experiences happen in the throes of brokenness. Do not rush from the place of pain. Let God work in your life and ask Him. Ask Him to open the door to serve Him at the right time. 2. Timidity is sinful when it turns aside from duty. While pride and self-confidence is rightly condemned by believers, sinful timidity is too often excused, overlooked, and falsely perceived as pious. But the anger of the Almighty is kindled against Moses for this very attitude, because God resents anything that stifles our obedience to his word. It is impossible to possess a true evangelical faith without a form of courage which obeys God at all times and at all costs. The key is not to focus on being courageous. But if you have faith to obey God, courage is inevitable. Learn to discern the unbelief in your timidity in doing God's will and trust Him. Trust Him just like you did when you asked Him to save you. 3. God can harden the heart of the rebellious. We are going to read a lot more concerning the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But there are a few things I want you to remember as we go forward. First, God does this not to those who love him, but to those who, according to Romans 1.28, do not like to retain God in their knowledge. The hardening is not the origin of the rebellion. It's the human nature that's the problem. Second, this hardening does not happen in a vacuum, but when men are faced with the truth and refuse to submit to it. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 2, wonderfully illustrated, where God sends a strong delusion because men receive not the love of the truth. And then thirdly, God is not passive in this hardening. In Psalm 105 verse 25, the history given is that God turned the heart of the Egyptians to hate his people. That's, that's really strong and direct language. Now perhaps we struggle to explain this, does this struggle permit us to deny it? If God is an active agent in changing men's hearts, how can he not be an active agent when we're told that he hardens men's hearts? Without ever being the author of sin, God may make the hearts of men more resistant to the truth. Now this is sobering, 
And Pharaoh stands as a warning to those who lightly esteem God's word. Four, God's guidance does not nullify obligations to superiors. Often when someone feels led by God into a relationship, a job, or a form of Christian service, they do what they want with little contact with their superiors. Now, they may inform them of what they're going to do, but they don't seek their blessing. Moses just had a direct encounter with the living God, and yet he still requests from Jethro to be released from his responsibilities to pursue God's will. So, young person, let me particularly address you. The humility necessary to place your future in the hands of superiors and have their approval before pursuing a course of action is remarkably confirming. Without it, you're just a rogue, you're a maverick, and you have no credible confirmation that you're doing what God wants you to do. You have a hunch. That's it. Now, you might think this is walking by faith, but it's actually unbelief. Since you don't believe God will control the hearts of men and use them to confirm your inclinations. There are many passages I could turn to to help illustrate this, but just learn from Moses and seek approval from your superiors. And finally, God is the father of his people. I had never noticed this before, and I don't think I've ever heard it mentioned, but this passage, I think, contains the first reference in the Bible where we can clearly see God revealing himself as the father of his people because he designates Israel as his firstborn. Now, there are few words which bring more comfort to sinners than being able to say, our father. I mean, think of the condescension that God would adopt sinners. And note how this revelation comes just as God is about to give one of the most powerful representations of his delivering grace in the Exodus. And Israel's right to call God their father will be based on the shed blood of the Lamb, which brings them out of bondage and eventually into the promised land. Oh, boys and girls, listen. We are all, all of us, born children of wrath. And we only become children of God when we obey Jesus and ask him to save us from our sins. So make sure, if you've not done that, that you do so today.